Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 5. If you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We will be looking through almost all of this chapter this morning. Let us give our attention to the word of God. Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a fast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of Israel, The Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cried, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen and the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, when Pharaoh's taskmasters had set, that whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they, were, as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, And I put a sword in their hand to kill us. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. There came a knock on the door on October 31st, and it was neither trick nor treat. It was 
Martin Luther. In the year 1517, he nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door of the church, and he wanted to debate the Roman Catholic Church's practice of selling indulgences for merit. Little did he know that those 95 theses would actually be, it would actually go viral. Translated and dispersed far and wide because of the invention of the printing press, it was, little, it was this little spark that would begin the Protestant Reformation. The church was centuries overdue for major reform, but at the heart of the Reformation was the way that Catholicism had obscured the true nature of the gospel. It had turned the gospel on its head, making the ground of the gospel inside a person rather than on Christ himself and on Christ alone. Luther, in studying the word of God, recognized that the gospel is not our own righteousness and trying to earn our way into God's favor, but rather we place our faith in Christ alone and the righteousness he imputes or that he gives to us. This is good news. Luther said, look, look at God's word. See what it says in here and see this happy salvation, this happy theology of this happy God. God's word doesn't speak about purgatory. God's word doesn't say that you can have these mortal sins that will kill your justification. God's word does not say that there's a, a ladder of works that you must go through to earn somehow God's favor. God's word tells us that Christ is an all-sufficient savior for our all-pervasive sin. Look at God's word, the magnitude of Christ's grace and sacrifice, and the Roman Catholic Church rejoiced. But they did. They didn't. His pleas and writings fell on deaf ears and stony hearts. Instead of listening, the Pope drew a line in the sand and Luther would be excommunicated, his life personally in danger. And everyone who believed in justification by faith alone is considered a heretic and that continues to be the stance today for the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Why, why did the Pope Listen, why didn't the Pope look at the scriptures, examine the scriptures and see this good news of this good God? Why didn't people generally, when they hear God's call upon their lives, want to know him and worship him? Well, it's because of unbelief. And that's what we see in Exodus 5 this morning. This chapter gives us a quintessential picture of unbelief. Chapter 5 provides us with an anatomy, you could say, of unbelief. What does it look like when you don't trust in God, when you don't know the name of God? That is where some of us were. This is where some of us were. And that's where some of you are this morning. And perhaps this is where some of your loved ones reside so I invite you to turn, if you haven't already, to Exodus chapter 5 and see what happens when Yahweh is not known.
There are two characteristics that we see this morning of unbelief in chapter 5 that you may find in your own hearts or in the hearts of those you love. Now, when we last left off in Exodus, Moses had made his return to Egypt, and to his great relief and probably to his own amazement, everything was going according to plan. Moses met up with Aaron, and together they gathered all the people, elders of Israel. That's where we left off in chapter 4. And verse 30, it says, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then what? He did the signs, and the people believed. They bowed their heads in worship at this good news that they, that they heard that God has seen their affliction And now Aaron and Moses, they go into the Egyptian court and they stand before Pharaoh and utter these famous words in verse 1. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go. Moses and Aaron, in the language of a prophetic messenger, they proclaim, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. The Israelites are God's own dear children. Rather than slaving away for Pharaoh, they ought to be worshiping and honoring him and serve their father. And the first thing we see in this opening paragraph is that in the heart of unbelief, there is a disregard for God and his word. A disregard for God and his word. Look at how Pharaoh responds. He says, who is the Lord Yahweh, this Yahweh, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I did not know the Lord And moreover, I will not let the people go. Now, there is a bit of truth in what Pharaoh is saying. He doesn't really know who Yahweh is. Uh, We we remember when we were looking earlier that even Moses himself had an obscure idea of who Yahweh is. And Pharaoh was probably a very religious person. Uh, He's probably what we would call a very spiritual person. He was even... He is no doubt aware of many gods and goddesses. He himself worshipped many gods and goddesses. He worshipped the god of the Nile, the god of the sky, the, the god of uh, the earth. He was interested in the afterlife, very likely. He probably understood that there was such thing as spiritual and, and, and miraculous phenomena. But he didn't know who Yahweh was. And he didn't care to know. He didn't accord him any respect. You know, at, at least that a, as a matter of diplomacy, he should probably be listening to the God of his slaves. But Pharaoh dismisses sarcastically that the Lord is even at his level. Pharaoh isn't even asking a sincere question like, oh, tell me who he is. No, it's rhetorical. He's saying, Yahweh, who that? For Pharaoh, is absolutely absurd to think that this God would make any demands on him. He mocks the God of Israel. It's a way of saying, I don't know who he is. I don't even know if he exists. If he does, I don't even care to know. I'm the king. Who is this Lord? And we will see that the rest of Exodus is basically an answer to that question. Because by the end of Exodus, everyone will know who the Lord is. Pharaoh will know, Egypt will know, Israel will know, the world will know. 
Now, once more in verse 3, with great boldness, Moses and Aaron continue to try to persuade Pharaoh. They say, the God of Hebrews, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. I'm, I'm giving you a little bit of hint who he is. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may make sacrifice to our Lord, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. We've talked about this before, but scholars raise this question over the precise wording of the request, like how could he possibly talk, I mean, Moses' intent was to take all the people out of Egypt forever. How could he talk about it as if they're going on a three-day retreat? Is he being truthful here? And again, there are a couple of ways to answer that question, but I still believe the best answer is that this was a bargaining tactic. The real question is not how long the Israelites will be gone, The question is whether or not Pharaoh was willing to even let them glorify God for three days. Because there's evidence in ancient literature and artifacts that show that Egyptian slaves were sometimes given time off to worship their gods. This is not actually an unheard of request. But Pharaoh is unwilling to to give God even three days of glory. Who is God? Pharaoh's merciless. He says, I won't let you go and take a break, even if it means your God is going to curse you. Pharaoh wants nothing to do with God. He wants nothing to do with God's people. He, he takes out all his frustrations on the Israelites. In verse 5, he essentially says, I will not give one moment's rest. That word there is Sabbath from their burdens. In fact, I will make their life harder. He says, bricks without straw. The king of Egypt appears to believe in this adage, the old adage, idle bodies make for active minds. He increases the workload of the Hebrews by making them gather their own straw in order to make bricks. Brick making required straw. It's like modern day, you know, building. You need metal. You need iron bars. You need rebar to strengthen the concrete. And straw was the same thing for ancient brick-making. To withhold straw would be like if someone told you, I'd like you to complete this code, but I'm not giving you a keyboard. You only have a mouse to use. Or it would say, here's the lawn. Go ahead and mow it, but I'll give give you this pair of uh, baby shears, you know, baby scissors. It's possible, but it would be tedious and really difficult painstakingly difficult. Pharaoh wanted to drive a wedge between Israel and their leaders. He said, you want to listen to Moses and Aaron? You want to listen to them? Well, let me tell you what, there's going to be no blessing for you. You think listening to them is a good idea? No worship for you, no straw for you, and no cutting back any of your production rates. Pharaoh wants to make their burden so heavy that Israel would not listen. Look at verse 8. He says, therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. You see the disdain of Pharaoh here. He doesn't even use the name Yahweh. He just says God, their God that they worship. And to him, Yahweh's words were not valid. What were they? They were just lies. Thus says the Lord, lies. Thus says the Lord, Moses. Well, thus says Pharaoh. That's what we see in verse 10. Thus says Pharaoh. 
There is no fear of God in Pharaoh's heart. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and therefore they are corrupt and do abominable deeds. Pharaoh is defiant. He disregards God, and he disregards God's word. And not much has changed since the time of Pharaoh. God still sends his heralds out into this world, saying, thus says the Lord, And in a world filled with spiritual people, some respond, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? They willingly remain in ignorance and indifference, perhaps because they know how much it will cost them to obey. But it happened to Jesus and his ministry on earth, and it happens now in our present age. And ultimately, it is a matter of the heart. They don't believe because they refuse to believe. I'm not saying that there aren't intellectual reasons why people don't come to the Lord. I'm not saying that there aren't intellectual roadblocks for people to receive God and his word. I'm sure Pharaoh could reason out what it would mean for him to lose his workforce and what it would mean for his economy to lose this workforce. But often the head finds reasons to disbelieve when the heart is unwilling to surrender. The heart is resolute and it's rigid and it's hard, impenitent, impervious. Like Jesus' parable of the sower, this is a heart that is never broken up, never plowed by conviction. It is never turned over by self-searching or any self-examination. Contrition, there's no honest assessment of guilt or repentance. The heart is callous. It is callous to the sweet reasonings of grace. And it is callous to the, to the fearful terrors of judgment. This is the person who sits in the church service week after week, month after month, listening to the word of God and says, I don't care. I don't care about God's desire to be reconciled with me. I don't care about hell. I don't care what the Bible says. God and his word falls lightly on their hearts. It's snatched away through false teachers. It's disregarded because they're more concerned with some vapid video on social media, distractions. It's taken away through the fear of man or an embarrassment about being identified with Jesus Christ. There is no curiosity. There is no interest. There's no way they can be bothered because the heart is only consumed by pride or doubt or prejudice or continual love of sin in the world. Like Paul said, the things of God are foolishness to those who are perishing. Moses' ineffectiveness is not because he, did, he didn't say the right things quite right to Pharaoh. It was nothing wrong with the message. It was a matter of the heart. So look at your heart this morning. How is your heart? Do you disregard God? Do you disregard his word? What is your response to the gospel? Are you right now just simply looking at the clock and wondering, oh man, when am I going to get out of here? That's a... That's the signature of the hard heart. And if you're not willing to be honest about your heart, 
hard condition and your long resistance of the gospel, the thing you need to do right now is to fall on your knees and to plead to God to soften your heart. To plead with God to soften your heart because only God can grant faith and repentance. You need to cry out with a broken and contrite heart and ask God to break up that hard-heartedness you have, that indifference that you're feeling right now. Look to God. Look to God and stop refusing him. Plead for a heart of understanding. Unbelief is characterized by a disregard for God and his word. And second, we see from our passage this morning, that unbelief is characterized by a desertion of God in suffering. A desertion of God in suffering. Look at verse 10. The situation starts to get a little bit desperate. There are major supply chain issues as the Israelite slaves are no longer given straw. In verse 12, Israel scatters throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. So stubble is uh, the remaining stalks between what was cut and the root. And uh, so this, this is the remaining portions after a bit of harvesting. And so it's a poor substitute for straw. And it makes the production of bricks a lot harder because it has to be all done by hand. So these Hebrew slaves must go into these harvest fields and tediously take up this stubble. And Pharaoh has essentially made the task virtually impossible. They will never make their production targets. They're just not going to. And so these taskmasters bear down on them. And we see in verse 14 that the Hebrew foremen are even beaten. So in desperation, the Hebrew foremen make an attempt to bring their grievances before Pharaoh. Look at verse 15. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. The Israeli foremen now show their true colors. You see that? Do you see that? They cry out to Pharaoh for help, not Yahweh. Earlier in chapter 2, it says, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. But now they cry out to Pharaoh. These foremen... These Hebrew foremen have switched allegiances just a moment ago in chapter 4, verse 30 and 31. uh, They had believed and bowed their head in worship. But now they cry out, not to God for help, but to Pharaoh. Apparently, their faith had just evaporated under the blazing heat of oppression. Now, you might think, okay, you're making a little bit too much of this, but... I I think later on we see in Exodus 14.10, once more, that the children of Israel cry out. This is the only other place that they talk about the children of Israel crying out. And there, they see the armies of Egypt bearing down on them, and they cry out to the Lord. Confirmation of the Hebrew foreman's allegiance to Pharaoh is to be found in their calling themselves Pharaoh's servants. Did you notice that? Verse 15, your servants, Pharaoh. Verse 16, your servants, behold, your servants. Three times the foremen are saying, they're emphasizing, my devotion, my loyalty is to you. 
Pharaoh doesn't hear their cry. He doesn't answer them. He does not aid them. In fact, he scorns them. He ridicules them. He demeans them. He accuses them. He says, idol, idol, you're just lazy. You're lazy. You just want to worship God? Lazy. And the foreman, it says in verse 10, saw that they were in trouble. They realized that the system that they were under before, that neat and tidy system, however oppressive it was, was now wrecked because of Moses and Aaron. So when they come out and they see them, they are absolutely savage. They pounce on them. They say, the Lord look on you and judge. It wasn't like, uh, let's, you know, let the Lord do whatever is right. It's the Lord look on you and judge you for what you've done. You made us stink because we used to smell so well before Pharaoh. Because we now stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have a sword in their hand to kill us. They have, even though they've always had the sword in their hand to kill them. They hurl verbal abuse at Moses and Aaron. And to the foreman, the problem is not the taskmasters. It's not Pharaoh. What's the problem? It's Moses and Aaron. And they actually call upon God to judge them. And here's Moses, who's given up so much for his people, faithful to speak the word of God to them and to Pharaoh. Yet when things don't go smoothly... They are subject to the cutting words of the congregation. The only person to be satisfied with the results in this section is Pharaoh. His strategy of dividing them seems to be going according to plan. He's driving this wedge, the foremen, they're blaming their spiritual leaders for all this hardship that they're enduring. Now, I don't think we need to be too hard on these foremen. Uh, They've been in bondage for a long time. Perhaps they could not think of themselves as anything but slaves. They were under the terrible thumb of oppression. But this is also a total reversal. They had heard Moses and Aaron. They accepted them. They worshiped God. But then their suffering came and it squeezed them. It squeezed them and it showed what was really going on inside, where their hope really resided. And where was that hope? Their hope was in the status quo. Help us in Pharaoh to bring back the status quo. They want to go back under the yoke of Pharaoh and not be under the yoke of God. They would rather remain in slavery than experience God's deliverance. And John Calvin, another wonderful reformer on this Reformation Sunday, said, this outbreak arose from want of faith because they measure the favor of God by their immediate success. They have lately thanked God for their promised redemption. Now, As if they had been deceived, they accused Moses and Aaron. Hence, we gather how wavering was their faith, which vanishes at once. The Israelites didn't see it coming. They were surprised by the suffering, weren't they? But they shouldn't have been. God told Moses in chapter 3, The king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by by a mighty hand. Later, God told Moses to, uh, about Pharaoh that he will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And now, earlier in chapter 4, we hear, we read that when Moses and Aaron gathered the people of Israel, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord has spoken to Moses. 
Do we think that somehow Moses had forgotten to tell them that there was going to be suffering? No, he spoke all the words. Commentator J. Motier writes, what did they, referring to the Israelites, think a harder heart would do to them? The answer would seem to be that they did not think because they did not hear. They heard only the good news that the Lord was on the move. They had no expectation of trouble ahead, yet the word of God was quite explicit. Again, like Jesus' parable of the sower, their hearts did not receive God's word, not because it was hard, but because it was rocky soil. They received the God's word with joy, but there was no root. They believed for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. They heard the good news. Deliverance is coming. God is saving. He sees their affliction, and they're excited. They're exhilarated. They're thrilled. Tears are flowing among the people of Israel. Hugs and embraces happen. They worship. They believe. But it was not a deep-seated conviction. And when the time of testing came, when the pressure mounted, when life literally got busy, when the emotions ebbed, so did their faith. And this happens to many professional Christians today. Sometimes people respond to the gospel because they're at the end of a broken relationship or they've lost their job or because they've been told they have a terminal disease or they're tired of being left out socially, and there's this euphoria that kind of comes in Christianity, and it's people. But after some time, when all the things they expected Jesus to do for them doesn't happen, when the problems don't get solved, when they're still sick, and their family is still disastrous in the situation that it was before, they simply go back to the way of life that they want to pursue. They desert God in their suffering, they say, I've tried God, and it didn't work. The truth is that there is no such thing as untested faith. Jesus promises in John 16, 33, that in the world you will have what? Tribulation. First Thessalonians 2, Paul notes two things which mark conversion as genuine. They recognize the word, and they recognize it as God's word. And second that they were tested by suffering. Peter instructs us not to think trials a strange element in the Christian life. And James even goes as far as saying that we should count, it, count trials as all joy. We could go on and on and see that when the word of God arrives in our hearts and lives, testing and trials will come as God's appointed way of sharpening his children. church, beloved, we are ambassadors of Christ, and the good news of Jesus Christ is really, really good news, isn't it? That the, only, the, the one and only God who made us to be in his image, even though, even when we are dead in our trespasses against him, God became a man in Jesus lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and took on himself the punishment of our sins for everyone who would trust and believe in him. He rose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and God's wrath against us has been exhausted. And if we repent of our sins, trust in Jesus alone for forgiveness, we are born again into new life, into the family of God. This is great news. All of us 
all of you who are Christians know how good this news is. That you've received salvation, that you're enjoying the riches of walking in union with Christ, even in the midst of suffering and difficulties. We understand the gift of salvation, of what it means to have sins forgiven, the burden of our guilt removed, our conscience being cleansed. We understand what it means for Christ's yoke to be easy and his burden light. We understand what it means to have the hope of heaven. We understand what it means to have a peace that transcends all understanding. Praise the Lord. But sometimes what is difficult for us to understand is how anybody could reject such a gift. And in those moments, we must remember that it is not because we need to change the message or tweak the message or to make it more palatable. If we have been faithful, it is the issue comes down to the condition of the heart. And so I close by asking all of you this morning, how is your heart? Who is the Lord? Do you have an answer to that? Who is the one in control? Who is really in charge? Who is the one to be trusted? Who will you serve? These are the questions we all must face. My prayer is that you would ask God for a heart that would put your trust in the one true and living God, that your heart would trust and see the beauty of Christ. And so while it is yet today, do not disregard God in his word. Do not desert him. And come and find your resting place in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word, which is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. How it has the ability to show and be like a hammer upon our hearts, hammering and hammering upon our hard hearts and showing and revealing before ourselves and before others even what is going on within our souls. We pray that we as a church would be always mindful and watchful over our hearts and that we do not have a, that we not, do not let unbelief to continue to linger, that we would have hearts, that we would always be pleading with you for soft hearts and ready hearts to listen to you, follow after you, even in the hardest of times. We do acknowledge that you work in mysterious ways, but we also acknowledge the truth of your word and what it says and the promises laid therein, that there is a good and final resting place in Jesus, and that our hearts can be settled upon him Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.